Some of you know that I used to do a podcast called History, the story of alcohol. It's kind of an irreverent look at the role that alcohol has played in, in the history of man. And I usually did the show uh, after I'd had a few beers under my belt. In one episode, I took a look at the weird, whacked, and what the f- of bizarre alcohols from around the world. The craziest thing I found was this rice wine from Korea that was made with poop from a young boy or girl. I know. At first, I thought this can't be true. There's no way. But Google Korean poop wine and you'll find out uh, it's true. It made me puke a little from the back of my throat. Anyway. But another alcoholic beverage that is almost on every list of weird drinks on the web is seagull wine. And here's the premise. Invented by the Inuit, that is the Eskimo people of the Arctic, it is said that they stuff a dead seagull in a glass bottle, fill it with water, and then leave it in the sun to ferment. Now, the first report on this was from Iceland, and the reporter discovered seagull wine being drunk by the local Inuit people of Iceland. Stop right there. There are no Inuit people in Iceland. They never migrated that far east. There were no people in Iceland until the 6th century when some Irish monks got blown off course off of the Faroe Islands. But anyway, people ran with this story, and it's on a bunch of different websites, so-called news and information uh, pages, and they repeated this story. And anyway... Here's part of my audio rant from the History Podcast on seagull wine. Roll it. Supposedly, those who have drunk the stuff, including this uh, Yahoo News reporter named Susan Donahue, who have drank this stuff, they all say the same thing. It's horrible. It made almost all of them sick, and it was probably toxic. Donahue wrote, If you opened up a Toyota's carburetor and drank the leftover fluid from inside, that would be pretty close. It goes down hard and settles in even worse. But I must say, it sure gets people inebriated in a hurry, and the next day's hangover is nothing short of spectacular, you feel like you've been repeatedly beaten over the head by a giant seagull. And that's the quote. That is the story you will find on the internet. And now I'm going to tell you what I said at the beginning. Seagull wine is unbelievable and it's It's probably completely false. I won't say it is for a fact, but my best hunch is that it was posted as fake news. The earliest post on it was seen posted in September of 2010 and has since been picked up by hundreds of websites over and over and over. Now, firstly, if the claims first appeared on the Internet seven years ago, somebody somewhere would have done further research into this beverage, and there would be additional research out there. And there isn't. Fermentationally speaking, there are no carbs in a monkey loving seagull at least very little, that can be converted into fermentable sugars. And even if there were, it would be so low in alcohol content that the alcohol would never get, content would never get high enough to where it would neutralize the bacteria that's in this rotten Uh bird. Now, additionally, there are no first-person accounts anywhere of seagull wine, only second-hand accounts, and all of them coming from this first post by somebody who quoted Susan Donahue 
on drinksfeed.com in September of 2010. And this person, Susan Donahue, that was first quoted, I looked and looked and looked, and I could find no evidence of her existence. And Googling Inuit culture, seagull wine, it doesn't come up except for the same second and all these other <laughs> websites that have been posting it for seven years since the first post in 2010. But you know why I'm absolutely pretty certain that this doesn't exist? No video. Somebody at some point in time would have made a trip up to Northern Iceland or Greenland or wherever this story might... There's a couple of legends. One says it came from Greenland. One came from Iceland. There were people in Alaska said, I know Eskimos. I never heard of them drinking this stuff. Well, you know why? Because it doesn't exist. Now, somebody at some time would have put up a video, had it had, does it exist, of them drinking it. The one thing we have in abundance in this society is people looking for their 15 minutes of fame. And a video of them drinking seagull wine that would nail it that would that would go viral in a minute it's fake news and on the fake news meter i give seagull wine five kellyanne conways so now i've been to iceland and there are no inuits in iceland there never have been and if the icelandic people had a thing like seagull wine guess what they'd brag about it because They've got this dish, and people eat it, made out of fermented shark. It has no alcohol in it. It's just rotten shark, and they'll tell you about that. So I've been to Korkatok, Greenland, and I asked an Inuit woman about seagull wine, and she looked at me like I had a polar bear coming out of the top of my head. So I'm going to revise my original statement from the history podcast when I said it's probably hoo-ha and tell you now unequivocally there is no such thing as seagull wine. But there are sweet waters to be drank if you know where to look. This is episode 16. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back home here in the home studio with good internet. We got back from our Viking Ocean cruise last night. One of the best things I've ever done. One of the greatest experiences I've ever had, but... Uh, uh, with uh, the Wi-Fi wasn't good. <laughs> with 900 people online on the same connection at the same time, well, it's really my only complaint with the entire trip. That, and they didn't serve any seagull wine on board. Anyway, I posted some photos for, from the trip over on the Facebook page, but, uh, of course, photos never do the scenery justice. I'll talk a little bit more about the trip when I get to uh, hook up with Tony later on in the show. But speaking of Tony, he's got a report for us this week on women in brewing. But first, last month, I went down to Georgia and stopped in to visit Sweetwater Brewing Company. I sat down with the Minister of Propaganda, Steve Ferris, and the head brewer, Nick Knock. <laughs> and this was absolutely one of the most fun interviews I have ever done. Uh, now, this is longer than usual interview, a little bit longer episode this week, but I owe you guys uh, some content from the last two weeks I've been away. Lesson learned, never plan on working on the podcast while you are on a cruise across the North Atlantic. 
Anyway, I thought about making it a two-part episode, but it wasn't quite long enough, so I thought I better just go with the long run. And now here it is, Sweetwater Brewing Company, your interview of the week. Hello, everybody. We're in Atlanta, Georgia, the farthest south that the Bruce Traveler has yet been. And we are at Sweetwater Brewing, and I'm happy to say this is one of our newest drafts over at Patty Malone's, our local craft beer pub in Jefferson City. And I'm here with Steve Ferris, who is the Minister of Propaganda for Sweetwater, and Nick Knock. Got that right. The head brewer. I bet bet you got a lot of jokes with that name. Too many. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elementary school. Nick Knock, who's there? Nick Knock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. even better. His wife is Mary Jane. Yeah, my wife's name is Mary Jane. Mary Jane Knock? Yeah. So we got Nick Knock and Mary Jane. Yeah. Kind of a... (laughs) (laughs) I knew this was going to be a good interview. Um, We're here. It's a Friday afternoon before they've opened the tap room to the public. And going to talk to Steve and Nick a little bit. But let's open this with a toast to, to new business partners. All right. Cheers. Although you all know this, I am no longer affiliated with the pub. I am an unpaid consultant. Sweetwater was established in 1997. So tell us how this place came to be, how Freddie Bench started Sweetwater. Yeah, so, um, you know, back in college at uh, CU out in Boulder, um, you know, college kid, you know, get a side job working at a brewery. And uh, one of the best benefits of working at a brewery is free beer. What brewery was he at? Boulder Brewing. Boulder, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that was back in the early 90s, and, you know, craft beer was great out there, but uh, presence nationwide hadn't really grown yet. Um, so he and his roommate, Kevin McNerney, uh, who was co-founder at Sweetwater, uh, you know, both worked there, both learned the tricks of the trade there, you know, started washing kegs and moved their way up to, to brewing beer. Um, ultimately, those two guys... You know, went on to get an education in brewing and start working for various breweries uh, out west, you know, between Colorado and California. And then the opportunity in Atlanta presented itself. You know, Freddie had some family down here, was traveling through, and Olympics in town, and this, this, the city was on fire, growth. But wasn't great beer being brewed in the city at the time. Very young uh, craft beer scene. You know, it wasn't until 94 that it was even legal to make your own beer right. in Georgia. Um, so, um, you know, big opportunity to bring that West Coast style of brewing to the South. Um, so Freddie and Kevin, you know, scraped up all the nickels that they had and, you know, threw everything they owned in the truck and moved on down with their dog and, and, and the rest is uh, student loans and SBA loans and family, uh, you know, kick in for uh, help you fund it and the cheapest industrial park possible on the West time. side of Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. And that was all you could afford. Yeah. Um, so it was a, uh, you know, really make great beer during the day, you know, go out and educate people and sample them on it at night and build a brand from scratch. When they opened in 97, where were they brewing beer? Out on the west side of Atlanta, uh, an area called Fulton Industrial. Okay. You know, it's a one-stop shop if you like, you know, hourly <laughs> motels and, you know, and crack and... and okay, yeah. everything everything, <laughs> yeah. that, everything that you need, yeah. yeah walk in the streets <laughs> and uh, And now there's beer. beer. Yeah. Now yeah. <laughs> and how long... Are, are you guys still brewing over there? No. No, no okay. No, no, no. How long have you been in this facility? We've been here since 2004. Okay, oh, well, 14 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's been great. Yeah, uh, I mean, it doesn't look... I mean, it looks like you might have moved in here two months ago. This place is really sharp. I mean, it, 
it, it, it's got a good look. Yeah, we've done quite a bit of expansion. When we moved into this place in 2004, there was 25,000 square feet at the time, this building. Um, and we've expanded across the parking lot, connected to another building, and then beyond that, we bought the land that was next to that, built a whole new building on it that just recently opened, featuring our barrel aging area and our, our conditioning warehouse. Um, so now we're over at 250,000 square feet. Okay, so Nick, you, you've you been brewing beer with uh, Freddie for almost from the beginning, right? Almost from the beginning, yeah. I'm probably about late. It came out February 17th. I started coming around August, September that, that same year. What was your background before you came to Sweetwater? Home brewer and bartending. That's, bartending's a good education. I did it for <laughs> years. Steve, yeah. how did you come about uh, becoming involved with Sweetwater? Yeah, so I've been here for 16 years plus now. And... Uh, Got involved. I was running a bar in Atlanta. Prior to that, I'd worked for Guinness and I'd worked for various wholesalers. Uh -huh. um, so I was on the selling uh, beer side of things. And when I was running a bar, got to know Freddie, and we sold a ton of Sweetwater, and he couldn't figure out how and why. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm talking about your beer. I'm educating customers who come in about a local brewery and about the quality of beers that you make. He's like, huh, that's how you do it. Like, yeah, that's... <laughs> Like, is there, basic, is there a different way you want me to be doing it's, it? It's basic marketing. <laughs> yeah, right. so yeah. It, was, it was, you know, super early on for Sweetwater, there was no knowledge of what craft beer was, let alone what Sweetwater was. Right. So we had to educate people one by one and teach them the difference between a pale ale and a porter. So, Steve, you were out there in Georgia before you were with Sweetwater. You were out on the front edge of marketing craft beer in Atlanta. Sure. And so, yeah, that, it was a, uh, you know, it was a very, um, you know, uh, loose time, you know, where, you know, people didn't understand why you had to pay more for beer. People right. didn't understand why you had so many different styles of beer. Uh, you know, you'd go into a bar or a restaurant and uh, you'd talk to them about, uh, you know, hey, I'd, I'd like you to put the Sweetwater 420 Pale Ale on tap. And they said, no, I've already got a local. But, then, but that doesn't make any sense. So. That the one that you have is a is a wheat beer. It's it's nice, but it's like a it's like a, a summer lighter wheat beer. This is a hoppier pale ale. It's a completely different style. Yeah, it's great. I only need one local, and that was the mindset at the time. Right. Um, because people didn't really care about diversity. They just needed to check a box. So I've got some imports, and I've got some domestics, and I've got a local, and I'm good. Uh, yeah. You know, think about somebody's wine list where they're like, I only need one red. I only need one white. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, so why did Freddie decide to come to Atlanta? Yeah, you know, Atlanta was a uh, you know, really ripe market for um, craft beer. Um, the laws had recently changed. Uh, there weren't very many breweries at the time, and there definitely weren't breweries making those hoppy, aggressive West Coast-style beers that Freddie and Kevin uh, you know, were used to making. You know, the recipes that they had written written for um, for some of the breweries that they had worked for are are things that translated so well to the South uh, because nobody else was doing it. Yeah, so The beers that were here before Sweetwater were all dark ales. Right. Yeah. Porters, so, I mean, stouts. Right. So, so the reason that, you know, 420 is called an extra pale ale as a style is, you know, it's a pretty aggressively hopped pale ale. So at the time, you know, we kind of wanted to let people know what you know, it's an extra pale ale. It's bigger than you'd expect. Not quite an IPA. Not the quite bigger, an IPA. But bigger you know, than a pale you know, ale. mid-fives and right. alcohol. But, right. you know, now it's it's almost funny to think that 
that was an aggressive beer at the right. time. You know, okay. now it's a, I, it's a, it's a, it's a super sessionable, you know, solid pale ale. It's got a good hop character, but anybody who enjoys good beer is going to enjoy that. Yeah, I just had, a, I just had a sample of it. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's, I can see that's an easy drinking all day beer. Yep. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that was the third beer that we made as a brewery. Uh, first two beers were, you know, it's a lighter wheat ale called Sweetwater Blue that has a little uh, blueberry a, to I it. I had a taste of that. And then our, you know, ESB. Uh, which was, you know, a little more of that maltier style, uh, which was actually the first one that we won an award at uh, Great American Beer Fest with. And then the third beer, you know, ironically enough, uh, brewed on 420 in 1997 was the 420 Pale Ale. That's where the name came from. You knew that, right? <laughs> no, I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. Birthday. Yeah, absolutely. Weird coincidence. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I was out in Boulder, or I was going to Boulder, and I was, uh, I called up Upslope. I was going to sure. interview them. And I called Matt, and I said, hey, Matt, I'm starting this project, a uh, podcast. We're going to be out west. I'd like to come in and interview you for the podcast. And he goes, oh, great, fantastic. When are you going to be here? It'll be Friday, the 20th of April. And there was a long pause. <laughs> and he's like, you know this is Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> yeah. Have you even made that I, connection I, I was like, Shinola. Perfect, it'll be a party. Okay, so I'll be there Saturday the 21st. And he goes, I think we'll be awake. All right, that's right. So you should probably bring that into our thing, too, because we do something on 420 every year also. Was that, when you released the 420, was that purposeful that you were going to do it on April 20th? Yeah, you can tell that stuff. No, it wasn't, it wasn't purposeful at all. It just, uh, I think we, we were coming up with the idea of doing a pale ale, and we were like, all right, when can we do this? And brewmaster at the time, Kevin, was just like, well, we got 420 open, so bam. Then we were also looking for the name, and like, well, there's the name. There's the name. Yeah. Yeah, so that's written on that first brew sheet. All right. Yeah. yeah. So, Nick, you said you guys kind of do something special around 420 every year? We throw on a little hoopla. Yeah. <laughs> a little small get-together for you. <laughs> yeah. you uh, 75,000 friends or so. Holy yeah. cow, where do you have that? We take it's, over uh, Centennial Park, yeah. which was created for the Olympics in 96. Right. Yeah, so we started it. Uh, this will be our 15th anniversary coming up of the 420 Fest. So it's amazing the type of bands that we have, you know, Widespread Panic and you know, Trey and Snoop and Cypress Hill. and Wow. Know, it's, yeah, it's, it's top level. Tedeschi and Trucks this past year, uh, Umphreys McGee, String Cheese Incident. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So we take over downtown Atlanta. Yeah, it's way too big of a party for us to host at the brewery. Right, of yeah. course. Seventy-five. And, uh, it'd be pretty crowded. It would be a little, yeah, yeah, a little yeah. tough parking. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, downtown has been great for us. You know, Centennial Olympic Park is, is fantastic. It's all the hotels and there's mass transit that gets you in and out. And then, you know, we bring wholesalers from around the country where we do business. We do a bunch of uh, contests for uh, customers, fans of Sweetwater to win way, win their way in. And, uh, you know, we look at it, you know, people are coming from all over the country. People are coming from different different countries also to come to Atlanta specifically for this festival. Wow. So it's grown from, you know, what used to be a pub crawl in, like, little five places. Of us walking around with a yeah. backpack full of cookies and brownies. Yeah. To we created a festival of something that brought all that passion of Sweetwater together, of environment and great music and great beer and, and community. And what started with a couple thousand people in a neighborhood park you know, then we, you know, bring in a full, you know, on big scale production company. And then we get these top talent bands that, you know, are, are really, across yeah. the world. Absolutely and, top uh, talent. You know, 
I, I could Gummy be wrong, Gummy. but I think we've yeah. got the biggest festival that a brewery owns. In the, I've like. never heard of anything bigger than this. What? Uh, how did the name and the, the logo come about? So when building the original brewery back in 96, out on the west side of town, uh, you know, you kick around ideas with obvious George or something or peach tree or like the, the kind of obvious deals. Uh, but just west of the brewery, one exit west off I-20, a place called Sweetwater Creek State Park. Great spot. You know, it's an unbelievable uh, state park within the state of Georgia. But it was also great after, you know, building the brewery all day, you go out to that park, you know, throw in your kayak in the water and, and, and get loose for a little while. But that name Sweetwater just resonated. Um, and that's where that name came from, is that, that state park just west of the original brewery. What about the trout? And the trout, you know, that comes from, that's a part of the lifestyle. Um, you know, it's uh, Freddie uh, growing up in California, uh, a lot of fly fishing out in Montana. Um, so bringing that, again, West Coast culture, West Coast lifestyle to the south is where that rainbow trout. But then additionally, the Chattahoochee River that runs right. through Atlanta, runs you know, from North Georgia down to the Gulf is the southernmost trout stream in the U.S. That's right. So you can catch rainbows, you can catch browns on that Chattahoochee River um, because just north of town is a giant reservoir called Lake Lanier, and they release water daily from the bottom, which is, I think, about 150 uh, feet deep. Right. Uh, where they release the nice water, and cold. so it's 50 degrees year-round right. on that river. Yeah. Yeah, we worked with, uh, you know, Trout Unlimited. We worked with the Chattahoochee River Keeper. Uh, last year, we worked with the uh, Department of Natural Resources to stock trout in the stream. Yeah, I, I read that about you guys. You're very much involved in water quality and fisheries. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, what, what specifically, and just give me a thumbnail sketch, what specifically are you doing to be involved with those projects? So we, shoot, this is probably 12, 15 years ago, we created the Save the Hooch campaign. Chattahoochee Riverkeeper is part of the Waterkeeper Alliance, which is that umbrella organization of hundreds of individual keepers that protect bays and rivers and, and lakes, just protect clean water, you know, our access to clean water so that we can recreate on it, we can drink from it, we can use it to brew beer. Um, so locally, it's the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper who protects our source of water to make this beer, you know, that comes, supplies the city of Atlanta. So what better organization to work with to help them and their cause than folks who help us make beer sure yeah so we've uh we've worked with them for a long time we've done the save the hooch campaign we've raised you know more than half a million dollars for those guys um, in their efforts to patrol and protect our access to clean water you know and they do they do so much more than that they do a ton of education as well and, and get that next generation thinking about you know rain comes down it lands on the streets it goes into the sewer it ends up in your river right and what can we do to protect that so, um, you know, we worked with, uh, with those guys, and we worked with the Department of Natural Resources, and, and we raised money to help stock the stream. The, the brown trout, you know, those things are pretty, uh, pretty lively, and they, they are, are, are healthy. On the, but the rainbow, um, you know, they, they get uh, whacked by those brown trout. Right. Um, so we worked with them to stock you know, some big rainbow trout. And they do that annually. We just help them put some, put some big ones in there. Okay, so Nick, how big is the brew house? We actually, I'd like to say currently, have the biggest craft brew house in the country. Okay. I have heard rumors that there's going to be a bigger one coming, but right now, we have a 400-barrel brew house. Holy cow. And typically, we brew 333 barrels at a time, 
because we have 1,000 barrel fermenter, so we'll do three batches into a fermenter. Uh, we can knock out a batch of beer every three and a half hours. So we're... we're yeah, I, well, in my short time going around talking to people, <laughs> that's not only the biggest that I've heard of, it's the biggest by a bunch. Yeah, yeah. it's go, pretty... Go I mean, speed, huh? Yeah, Sierra Nevada <laughs> doesn't even have that. You know, they, they got a like a 150 and a 200, but as one unit, you know, we got the biggest... Yeah. And, and here on the campus, uh, you've got a, between your, I see your warehouses there uh, off to that way. I don't even know my directions because I can't see where the sun's at. That's up. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's up, down, <laughs> left, right. So uh, so that's east, right? Sure. Okay. I would call it north. Is that north? Okay. That's what I would say. So you got a warehouse there to the north, and it's a huge warehouse. And then your, your brewery here, this is, this is a yeah, yeah. Um, our, our tasting room that we're sitting in right now, you know, this uh, this has been great. You know, this in 04, uh, when we moved in here, this was the intention of, you know, what we used to be on the west side of town. We were lucky if 20 people would show up for a tour. Right. Uh, you know, in Georgia, we couldn't sell beer, but we were allowed to give you a tour. We were allowed to give you free samples. Right. We could sell you a glass, but the beer inside of it had to be free. Yeah. So... And it worked out well because it used to be just free beer right, for anybody right. that's brave enough to show up. Right. And then we're like, you know what, let's charge a couple of bucks for the glass just right. to cover our costs on the glass. Right. We're not worried about the beer. Um, so we'd have people come up and we're like, all right, maybe we should just, you know, give them tickets of how many beers they can get so we don't have people that are overindulgent. Um, so that really became the rule in Georgia of how a tour and a tasting could be run is you have to give them a certain amount of tickets, a certain amount of beer. You can sell the glass, but you can't sell beer. Just recently, it's about a little over a year ago that those laws changed. Okay, I was going to ask. Now that. we can sell pints. Now we can sell beer to go. And we were one of the last states in the country where a brewery could sell direct to customers. It's still evolving, and customers are still learning about right. that. We still have people that come in that think it's the old way. Right. Uh, but we get two hundred fifty thousand people a year that come through our tap room for tours and tastings. So, were you guys involved in crafting that legislation? We were. The, the Georgia Brewers Guild uh, okay. has uh, evolved tremendously over the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, as more breweries have opened up, there's more power to that guild because we've got a bigger voice right. and more resources. You know, everybody pays in dues, and, and we've got a fantastic executive director, uh, Nancy, uh, who um, she has... Shoot, she's got a degree in just about everything politics at this point in okay. her life. Um, and she's done a wonderful job for us to, to navigate those legislative waters. And ultimately, you need that person. Yeah, ultimately yeah. the wholesalers got on Nancy. board with the idea um, of, yeah, it makes sense for breweries to have the opportunity for direct sale, especially small breweries who need that revenue stream in order to get to their, themselves to a level that it makes sense for them to you know, go wider and go bigger, to finance their tanks right. and their people. Mm -hmm. Speaking of going wider and bigger, uh, what's your annual production? Why are you pointing at me when you say wider and because bigger? Because you're, well, I have, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not casting aspersions on anybody, wider and bigger. Uh, what's your annual production? Um, Steve would actually probably know better than I, but I'm thinking this year, Whatever probably going to push around 280,000 barrels. barrels. So you're over a quarter of a million. Yeah. We're uh, top 15 in the country from yeah. the Holy Brewers Cow. Association, yeah, craft brewers. 
Yeah, right. so, you know, with uh, the uh, addition of Missouri, we're now in 22 states. That's was going to be my next uh, yeah, question. So What's your, distri your distribution? Yeah, it's, it's been f super tight for a long time, and we've been very methodical about how we've grown. You know, it was, shoot, maybe, uh, so we moved into this building in 2004. It was right around that time that we opened up our first state mm -hmm. outside of Georgia. I so mean, that's yeah. one thing Sweetwater's done very well is that we don't open up another market until the markets that we're in are happy. Right. You, you're not, don't go crazy and go worldwide. Right. You know? Well, you see what you see happening with a lot of breweries is they do. They expand faster yeah. than their production. You can't and take then, care of it. And then they have to, they they have to consolidate. They yeah, they have to contract. You know, something that we, uh, we do is we don't pasteurize our beer. We keep a... Uh, uh, 90 days is our, our life on our beer. We put it super obvious on every bottle, every can. That's within 90 days. Uh, because, you know, beer is meant to be consumed fresh. Obviously, there's certain styles that, that can age well. Right. Uh, but the majority of the beers, these, these hop-forward uh, beers, are, are meant to be consumed fresh. Yes. Uh, so we are very diligent about that. We've got a good, you know, auditing process where we educate all of our wholesalers and our sales reps are, are, are bonused on fresh beer in their market, you know, our people. Um, and we go in and we do surveys, you know, a couple times a year and, you know, make sure that, you know, what we're putting out is, is good beer. Because, you know, you drop 10, 12 bucks on a six pack, you get home and you taste off flavors, that might be your first and only impression of what Sweetwater is. And then you'll you never, never buy it again. Right. You're, right. Never, you're, yeah. you're lost. So yeah, you're lost exactly. as a customer. So yes. it's not worth it uh, for us to go too far too fast. I'm looking here at what's offered on the board here at the tap room, and I'm seeing an extra pale ale, an IP, an India pale ale, an IPA, a, 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 a fruit IPA with pineapple going coastal, which I just drank and is delicious. I'm now drinking your tropical IPA, Triple Tail, which is also very good. And before I get out of here, I am going to have the easy and the hazy. Uh, hop hash and the mosaic so i'm i'm assuming that you guys have made a conscientious effort to really kind of focus and explore ipas sure well i mean we're going for natural flavors you know right. and we're also bringing something to the south that wasn't here 20 years ago right so and we're trying to embellish upon that so whatever we can do that's new and exciting and organic uh -huh. we're all about it let me ask you this. Why do you think IPA is the number one craft type of craft beer, you know, it's a pop in popularity, right. sales? Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's the quality behind it. I mean, it's the, the balance of the beer, the, the malts of the beer, and then on top of it, you have so many different hop varieties, and then how you introduce the hops to the beer while you're brewing it, right. the flavors and aromas you get out of it. And that takes a deft hand. Right. To know how to do that. Yeah, and you got to be super creative also. Right. Say, hey, this will hop, this hop will work with this. And there's, I mean, like you said, how many, how many IPAs are out there right oh, now? You got to, you got to stand out. Yeah. yeah. Somebody says, oh, I don't like IPAs. They're too hoppy. What, what would you say? Well, I mean, teach their own. I, I have several friends that are like that, but there's, we could dial something in, like the the session right there. I right. think that you know. If you didn't tell them it was an IPA, it's just or the tropical, uh, not the tropical over the triple tail, which is very tropical. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't say, "Hey, this was made by hops." Right. They were just like, oh, "Fruit juice." Right. Yeah. I always tell people 
people that come into the pub and they say, I don't like IPAs. And I say, well, you haven't had, you haven't found your that's IPA. It, that's it. Yeah. yeah you, you haven't found your IPA. You can dial it in to, right. you can find the one that's dialed in for you. What do you think, Steve? Thanks, Dora. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I mean, about, <laughs> what, what, about IPAs, why do you think? You're in the market. He's yeah. in the brewing end. You're in the marketing it's end. customer. Customer is king. Uh, you know, um, you know, as... As a brewery, we can come up with esoteric styles. We can do things that really excite us and 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 push the um, push the direction one way or another. But um, you know, ultimately, you know, we see people in our tap room every day, and it's our focus group. We got right. you know hundreds of people here, and they're telling us what they what want. they want. Yeah, you know, we make brown ales, we make porters, we make lagers. The best-selling beers that we've got in our tap room are happier, aggressive beers. But, and, and what the beauty part is for us as a brewery is there's so many different styles of those that you can make, you know? And like Nick was just saying about all the different ones that you just rattled off, right. they're all distinct in their style. They if you are. put them next to each other, you're like, wow, I'm getting this and I'm getting that taste and this one's lighter body and this one's bigger body, this one's lower alcohol, this is higher alcohol. It's a wealth of, of opportunity within that category to, to play. You've been here 21 years. Something like that, yeah. You've been here 16. 16. I'm going to ask you each this question separately. And since you've been here longest, I'm going to ask you first. What was the best day ever that you had at Sweetwater Brewing? Uh, there's been a bunch of good ones. I don't know. Um, 420 Fest is always a blast. You know, I don't know if you'd call that a day at Sweetwater. But yeah, that's, that's a day. And it's a good fun weekend. That's a good long day. Um... But back in the day, we did this beer called Festival, and when we were just starting up, we would recruit volunteers, and basically it was a spiced porter that we put out for the winter. Every year, we did a, a batch of Festival, and then we would have people come in and help package it. I mean, it was all hand-bottled, you know, I mean, we'd be shooting stuff, filling the bottles, putting it up, they'd be capping it, rinsing it off, labeling it, put it in a box, send it on its way, and you just... Whenever we did that, it was really fun because you just always met new people, and it was just energetic and exciting and flavorful and a little tipsy towards the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Steve? What's uh, your best memory of one single day at Sweetwater? Uh, going up on the stage at uh, Great American Beer Fest to accept an award in 2004, you know, Back behind that, in 2002, we won Small Brewery of the Year and Brewmaster of the Year and a bunch of individual awards for our brands. And I was in Atlanta at the time. There was a bunch of folks who were out in Denver, and I got a call from Freddie. I'm at, actually at Centennial Olympic Park doing this hands-on Atlanta charity event. I've got our old beat-up draft truck, and I'm there pouring kegs, and I'm sweating in the back of the truck, moving these kegs around, and pouring a bunch of, you know, free beer for all these volunteers who did this charity day. Freddie calls me, and he's screaming into the phone, man, we just won it. We won the whole thing. We won it, man. It's awesome. We just won it. Yeah. And hangs up. I didn't hear from him again until, like, Monday. I was like, I guess we won something. I don't know. I didn't know what he was talking about. So I find out on Monday that we just won the biggest award you could possibly win as a brewery in craft beer. So next year, I'm like, I'm going. Like, I'm not missing this. Right. So 
said, I'm going. Next year, we don't win a thing. It's gone. A couple of guys with me were like, man, it's your fault. <laughs> Bad luck. Now it's my fault. So 2004, we won another award. I got to go up on stage, broke that personal curse for me, you know, medal around the neck. And, you know, from there, it was, yeah, it was, it was fully in from there. Said you wear the medal all day long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's... We are the champions. Yeah. There's a special feeling walking around. <laughs> American Beer Fest with a medal around your neck. Yeah. High five and everybody yeah, you could possibly fantastic. high five. Yeah, yeah, I bet that was a great day. Yeah. So, both of you, is there something about the industry, once you got involved in it, that surprised you or you didn't expect? Uh, one thing I really enjoy that I didn't really expect would be uh, probably the camaraderie. Everybody in the business is so cool with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it's really neat when uh, brewers get together from different breweries and just talk and put back a couple beers. I mean, there's very no ill will. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just a happy time. You learn off of each other. It's, uh, it's, it's really nice. It's fun. My answer is the exact opposite of his. Okay. <laughs> um, the thing I didn't expect was the competition. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's not competition of, like, I'm going to try and take out brand A because, you know, my beer is better than your beer. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's... Phones leaking. The creative, creative juices. It's, okay, it's new beers. It's how fast you get it out to market. It's how many different brands are within one wholesaler. Right. It's coming up with names for your beer. You know, 6,500 breweries well, now doing now, yeah. 15 different beers to 50 different beers per year. And everybody's going to come up with a new name for it. Right. And you don't step on each other's toes and, you know, try to have unique identity to what you're doing. You know, that was something that, you know, has gotten pretty hard in the last year to two, two years is maintain your independence um, while there's 6,500 people trying to maintain their independence as well. Well, that kind of leads into my next question, which is what challenges do you foresee not only for Sweetwater, for Sweetwater, but also for the industry? You know, innovation is a challenge for Sweetwater, and, but it's a challenge every year. It's a challenge that we love. It's a challenge that you know, we accept and we're excited about. You know, challenge, you know, challenge with Nick and the brewing team yeah, to absolutely. come That's up with new styles. And it's a challenge for us as, as uh, from a marketing side to, to figure out how to package those styles up and present them to our sales team so that they're super excited about going out and presenting it to wholesalers and retailers and customers. Um, you know, that's uh, you know, something that we see uh, you know, as a challenge every year. Well, you got to always think that you, you want to come out with the next big thing, the next quality thing that's going to be good, like hazy IPAs or whatever. Yeah. You know, and it's just amazing that, you know, a couple of years ago, there's Nobody. a hazy IPA, and all of a sudden, ba bam! There's Nobody hazy IPAs it was, everywhere. Right. It's right. just like, really? You know, yeah. 12 years ago, we call this a mistake, but <laughs> people love it now. It's something that's hazy, uh, juicy yeah. IPA. Something that's a really new frontier for us is this uh, the 420 strain G13 IPA. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's a uh, it's a remarkable beer. It is a hazy IPA at its base, and it's a fantastic beer. But what has been done is a step forward of, you know, we, we add uh, terpenes to that beer. And terpenes, you know, for those who don't know, are basically the essential oils of plants. Uh -huh. um, you know, orange juice has it, rosemary has it, hops have it, marijuana has it. Um, it's kind of what makes up those flavors and aromas mm -hmm. are these terpenes. 
who are utilizing G13 strain-specific terpenes to get that mimic, that flavor and aroma. Um, and then we're also utilizing hemp flavor in the beer to give a, a bigger aroma and a bigger body uh, to what it is. And it's a whole new, you know, we were talking about how, how many different IPAs there are. Right. This is a whole new category off to the side sure, yeah, of, I think of what it is. From what I've read, I think that's going to be the next big thing. So do we. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're all in. You know, we're, we bottled it yesterday, um, you know, the G13 for the first time. We've been kegging it now for uh, uh, almost two months. Um, we've, we're putting a ton of resources as a brewery uh, behind it, behind creative and behind education, behind sampling. You know, our sales teams are completely focused on it um, because it's something new. And, and you know, finding what's new in craft beer is what challenges us as, as a brewery. Um, and when you do find that, or you think you found it, you know what? Step on the gas. Let's right. go spread the word. Let's go share it with the world. But we also put a lot of work into it. We just didn't make it as like a gimmick beer. We we played around with this a lot. I mean, this is a really enjoyable beer that happens to have some G13 strains. Is that in right there? The, um, yes. I'm gonna have one when I get done here. Right. Other than that, anything new uh, that we can see coming down the river for Sweetwater yeah, Brewing? Well played down the river. Yeah, so, shoot, there's a ton of new beers coming out for the brewery this fall. The Mosaic IPA, which we talked about, that's our fall seasonal. And then backing that one up, coming out, uh, it's in our variety packs now, um, but it'll be in uh, six packs and on draft in November, December, Exodus, which, you know, tell that story about winning that medal on stage. That was for the Exodus Porter. This is a new iteration of that where we've um, got Jamaican uh, Blue Mountain coffee added to it. When we, a porter? Yeah. Oh. When we yeah. had the Exodus Porter, that was the most award-winning porter in the country at the time. Yeah. 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 So it, it's a quality beer, and now we threw a little Jamaican coffee into it. Oh, man. Yeah. And then the, the G13. Oh, I'm so, yeah. yeah. I'm so thankful it's going to be available in Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Good G13, morning. that's going to be rolling out, uh, you know, in 16-ounce cans and in, uh, in 12-ounce bottles. We actually did a black bottle. Uh, for that G13, so that'll be pretty cool. And then something that's brand new also is uh, this, this whole new project, and it's, it's a completely kind of step away from what we've done at Sweetwater for a while, but still within that same spirit, is uh, something called Guide Beer. Um, so Guide Beer is something that we've been working with guides, fishing guides, you know, climbing guides, you know, just general folks who... Outdoorsy. Right. Whose profession it is to take people to places they can't get on their right. own. You know, these guys, these guys are, are rock stars. These guys oh, are, of course. You know, are, are, they're everybody's hero. You know, when you get out there with right. them, it's, it's an I, amazing day. I don't know if you're a fisherman or not, but I am. And when I go someplace where I'm not unfamiliar with the waters, I hire a guy. Of course. Sure. You know, people say, oh, I went there and the fishing sucked. And well, it's like... Well, because you're, you were cheap, <laughs> and you didn't hire a guide. I mean, I grew up on the Mississippi River, right? My dad knew every place to go on that river to find whatever fish. And I just learned early on, it's like, if you go somewhere, and you're spending thousands of dollars to get there, yeah. and you don't spend another $100, $200 a day to have a guy come out and show you where the fish are, you might as well take the rest of that money and wipe hoo-ha with it. <laughs> <laughs> so you realize how valuable guides oh, are. Oh, guides, yeah. guides are, you, like you said, they're rock stars. They're yeah. heroes, man. They put yeah. fish in the boat. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And they take you to places you couldn't get on your own or, or show you things that you just didn't right. see before. You wouldn't know it. So we've got this um, beer coming out called Guide Beer. It's a lager. It's 4%. Something that guides would love. And we worked with these guys on what kind of beer do you like? What kind of beer do you like in your boat? What kind of beer would you drink? Um, and so that's how we developed that, that recipe. Uh, four guides, and then 11% of the profits from that guide beer are going to be donated to guides in need. You know, these guys don't make a ton of money. They don't. They live a phenomenal mm-hmm. lifestyle, what it looks like from the outside, sure. right. but they don't make a ton of money. But, you go, right. but their, their work is seasonal, too. Yeah, I mean, work is seasonal. They travel like, around the country to where yeah, the work is. Oh. I, go to, I go to Sioux Lookout, not every year, but every other year, and there's one guide up there. He's a, he's a retired hockey. He was a retired minor league hockey player, and now he coaches the, the uh, First Nations, the Natives. Oh, nice. School, he coaches their hockey team. His name's Steve Dumonsky, and he's just one of the nicest guys I've ever met. But, you know, he's working. He's got a school teacher's salary, and any extra money he makes, he makes during summer taking you out and showing you where the pike are, the muskie, the smallmouth, and the walleye. That's what he does. Beautiful. But, you know, yeah. yeah and, and, and those guys are amazing. And, and the relationships with those that you get with that person after one time and then you tell your friends about them right. and then hopefully when they go they right. they work with that same guy but you know god forbid something happened to the guy where you know he got in a car accident and he can't go out and do it you know what that whole income stream for him is gone so that's what that guide fund is going to be you know we've got this website called guide.com uh, where we're um, you know going to just showcase these guys you know hopefully we'll drive business to them you know, you, sure. you want to go, you know, heli skiing in San Juan Mountains in Colorado? Here's the guide to go with. Right. You want to go fishing in the Outer Banks of Cape Hatteras? Mm-hmm. Here's the guide to go with. You want to go down the Keys? We got guys for you. We know these guys. We got relationship with these guys. They've been part of this program. You know, and you know, we're building this, you know, whole outreach uh, to work with and support guides and the work that they do. That's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, I've never heard of any. I've never heard of anybody doing something like that, and it's something that was needed. You know that it is. It's yeah, something that so needed. Because, check it out on, on guidebeer.com. It's you know it's a cool resource. We'll it's, put a link in yeah. the show notes Thank to you. that website, and all of our listeners out there, if you're if you're an outdoorsman, if you're you're an avid hike hiker, fisherman, rock climber, whatever you might be, you need to support guides because yeah. they they mean a lot to our recreation 100 percent. so that's yeah that's gonna be huge you know we're gonna start sampling literally we're gonna be sending beer to those guides this fall so they'll be the first ones who get the beer the first ones who taste it you know we'll be sponsoring a you know a tournament or, or different you know events that those guys are involved in and then uh spring of, of next year full scale you know full full footprint everywhere we go yeah, guide beer is going to be our, our big bet for 2019, you know, alongside this, you know, 420 strain, you know, this G13 idea. And, and so we've got a lot of cool things that are coming down. So your guide series, is that going to be a, uh, available draft, package? How, how is that going to run? Yeah, so that's going to be in 12-ounce uh, cans and 16-ounce cans as well. We're not doing draft on it because this is something built for the boat. Uh, it's built for the outdoors. The, the artwork that's on those cans is going to be something that I've never seen from a different brand before. It's 
It, it, it's literally a topo maps. You know, the, the topo maps showing you these awesome spots where these guys work. You know, down to the detail. Oh, of, I'm a I map. need to be oh. in this area up on this elevation. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm those cans nerd. are showing you. So yeah, these cans they'll there'll be a series of cans showing different locations throughout the U.S. that are where where the best whitewater is, or where the best uh, you know fishing for tarpon is, or where the best heli skiing is. Uh, that's what it's about. Thanks. It's showcasing where these guides work, and then taking you back to introduce you to those guides, and ultimately complete that full circle about who they are, what they're about, and how we can support them. That's that's fantastic. That's pretty wild. Yeah. You're putting your money where your mouth is. You know. Absolutely. You know, and that's something Sweetwater since, you know, 97. Is we've been always about authentic. You know, it's, this is not some focus group thing about, uh, well, let's narrow it down. And this is what we see makes what crap, you know. No, we are our focus group. So when's the guide series going to be available? So we're going to start shipping cans of it out to guides and out to different events this fall. Uh, so starting in mid-September and then full-blown in uh, February, March of 2019. Absolutely. I'm going to be watching for that coming on the truck. <laughs> awesome. That's going to be great. I always like to end these uh, interviews with a lightning round, five questions. And I kind of got an idea. I'm, I, I picked the right category. There's no right or wrong answers, wrong only right or wrong people. <laughs> And so, this is fishing. That's your category. All right. Number one, king salmon on Alaska's Kenai River or marlin fishing in the Gulf Stream just off of Camp Havana Bay, Cuba? Marlin. Marlin and? Salmon. Salmon. I can, okay. I can eat them. One or one. Right. Number two, fly fishing for trout on the big black River of Montana, or fly fishing for tarpon on the flats of the Florida Keys? I'd go Montana on that one. I live Florida Keys. I've never caught a tarpon before. <laughs> All right. so yes, go. we don't hang out. <laughs> okay. Largemouth fishing on any impoundment in, uh, in the United States, or smallmouth fishing in the Boundary Waters Wilderness Area? I would do smallmouth. I'm with it. And his nickname in college was Impoundment. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, at least it wasn't smallmouth. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, number four. New England striper fishing off of Montauk or Mako shark fishing? on the Pacific, just out of San Diego. Go for the shark. I'll go Montauk. And finally, number five, monster flathead catfish on the upper Mississippi River or trophy walleye fishing on Arkansas's White River? I'd have to go with the first one. The flathead? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, what's uh, the better scenery? I think I might I go Arkansas. They're both pretty. Depending on, yeah, the upper Mississippi, you got the bluffs. And One of my dreams is to drop a boat at the top of the Mississippi and, and just go, go all, all the way, way to down. New Orleans. Yeah. You know, I had that dream once, too. Oh, great. Yeah. We bought an RV instead. Yeah, I bought yeah. an RV instead. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Yeah. Steve, Nick, hey, guys, thanks so much. Also want to thank Tucker here. 
she arranged all of this. We've had a great, great morning here at Sweetwater, and we're going to have a great afternoon. And uh, guys, back at you. Cheers. Cheers. It's a pleasure. And thank you very, very, very much. Uh, that's it, folks. My nickname in college was Flathead, but that's another story. Thanks again to Steve and Nick, and especially Tucker Berta Sarkeesian. She's the communications director for Sweetwater and all of her work in setting things up for us. Uh, the hospitality these folks showed me was phenomenal. Um, I was there on a Friday. They were very busy, but they took all the time they could for me. And I got to stay overnight on their parking lot. It was a great time. I need to get back there soon. It was a lot of fun. And they're very dog-friendly, so it would be a great place for Cody. Sweetwater Brewing Company is located at 195 Otley Drive in Atlanta, Georgia. The tap room is open Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 4.20 p.m., and on Saturdays at 11 a.m. and Sundays at half past noon. Tours are available, and they have facilities for private events and VIP tours as well. To learn everything you would ever need to know about the good folks at Sweetwater Brewing, check out the website, sweetwaterbrew.com. Hey, ba, da, 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 yeah. Ha, hey. on scale buco. What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? And Mr. Tony Rehagen, freelance journalist. How are things in the St. Louis area this week? A little hot, but I can't complain. It's nice to hear your voice over the phone again. Uh -huh. how, how was your trip? It was absolutely one of the most phenomenal experiences of my life. I, When we signed up for this almost two years ago, I, yeah. I knew it was going to tick a lot of boxes on places where I'd always wanted to see, but never thought that I would. And, you know, of course, we had Bernie and Sabrina Fecta with us, so I made it that much better. And it's always great when you're able to share those kinds of experiences with friends. Oh, for sure, for sure. So what, what, is there anything that stands out, like the best thing that you saw there? That you Absolutely. It was Greenland. I was blown away. I knew it was going to be like just this really primeval place, but mm -hmm. we sailed through Prince Christian Sound, and it was like going beyond the wall in the Game of Thrones. <laughs> I mean, it was. It was like you were in this area where you were expecting White Walkers and Wildlings just to pop up. But, uh, no, it. Uh, there were none of that. Uh, Inuit people there in Korkatok, that was the town we visited, and... Uh, Really, there's not much there. I don't. It doesn't do a lot of tourism. I mean, mainly it's an outfitting town. There are no roads in Greenland except streets in the cities. There are no roads connecting any of the villages because everything's you know everything's on the coast. So all the transportation is by boat. And, oh wow! Uh, yeah, and um, you know the people there were very friendly, nice folks. Um, Viking Cruise Line. I. It's. This isn't a paid endorsement, but these guys, they're amazing. This was our first ocean cruise with them. We did a, a river cruise on the Seine from Paris to Normandy back for the uh, 70th anniversary of D-Day in 2014. And both times, fantastic service. And two weeks on the ship, we got to be really good friends, uh, especially with the ship's uh, house band. Uh, oh. Yeah, because they closed down the Torshaven Lounge every night. They were the last act, and we were always closing the bar down. So we got to know them pretty well. And, uh, yeah, these great young people from the Philippines, Arvin and Judith, the singers, and the 
Judith's husband, Joseph, on the drums, and the leader of the band, Joel, he kept every, he was on keyboards, and Red on the bass, Boots on the lead guitar. They were just fantastic people. They made us feel so at home. It was, it was really, it was, they were one of the best cover bands that I've ever heard. They played hits from the 50s to last week, and everything sounded the way it should. They're great arrangements, fantastic vocals. Um, Almost as good as Still Joy. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, to that effect, did you get up and sing with them at all? Did they let you get up and sing? Mm, of course I did. There was alcohol involved. <laughs> um, a, a little Jimmy Buffett, some Eagles, and it was, it was great. It wasn't just the band either. The entire staff and crew on the Viking uh, cruise line, they're just great. Our stateroom attendants, uh, Robinson and Connie and... Uh, they were fantastic. We became friends with one particular server, a fellow from Bali named Perwa, and uh, he made sure that our glasses never ran dry. Um, if you do do a Viking cruise, get the Silver Spirits package because uh, it's uh, it's the only way to fly or sail. Nice. Yeah. And nice. Uh, well, I, that leads into like, the most important question. Yeah. Uh, what's that? Did you drink any good beer? Oh, well, you know, there were two breweries in Reykjavik, uh, Aegis Garthot, Garthor. Yeah, I can't pronounce it. My Icelandic's terrible. And then, uh, and there was a Brigian brew house. Uh, but we're, we were so busy, we weren't able to get over there and see them. Uh, but I drank a number of both of their beers, and they were very good. Uh, Brig, Brigian, I think that's how you say it, Brigian brew house, had an especially good hazy IPA. And on board the ship, they had stocked some uh, Norwegian craft beers from uh, Azir Brewing. Uh, there was an IPA and an Amber Ale, both of which were very good. But I think the best beer I had on the entire cruise was in Quebec City. Um, mm. Our last full day on board, we found a great little pub in the old French quarter of the city, uh, Les Pubs de Bourges. De Bourges. They specialize in craft beer, and I asked them, uh, I asked the server, Alex, I said, do you have a, a Quebecois uh, craft brew you can recommend and he brought me this double IPA and it, it was from a, a brewery called Death Valley and it, Ooh, it nice. was so good and if I hadn't had the excursions uh, booked that afternoon to see the rest of the city I probably would have just sat there and got hammered but uh, nice. yeah. and nope. I think we're going to go back to Quebec City for a long weekend that's not you know you fly Columbia to Chicago and Chicago to Quebec City you can do that in four or five days but I tell you what, I don't know when we're going to be able to take another cruise, especially one of that magnitude. I mean, we were sure. gone. We were gone 18 days. We were 15 days on the boat. I mean, um, you know, they aren't inexpensive. These cruises cost a lot of money, and we saved up for this uh, for for quite a while. And uh, but when we do do it again, we're going to do another Viking cruise. They're fantastic. They're just that's awesome. They're wonderful people. But if you're in Quebec City, you know, go check out Les Pubs de Bourges. I think that's how you say it. Anyway, <laughs> that's enough about me. I, uh, what about you? What do you got for us this week? Well, it's interesting. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I was working on a story for uh, Southwest Airline Magazine, that, the in-flight magazine for Southwest Airlines. Yeah, um, good client of mine. But uh, it was about their. It was for their annual spirits uh, issue. And it was uh, I did a story about Bailbreaker Brewing, which is actually a, uh, a brewery that is is opened by a family that is a fourth generation hop farming family in Yakima Valley, Washington. And we we had mentioned at a previous segment that like ninety percent of our hops comes from right. the, the Pacific Northwest. Well, they th th this uh, this family like like they they started as soon as Prohibition ended, they planted their their first crop of hops and have been making money on it ever since. Um, ups and downs, obviously. 
But anyway, the cool thing about it was is that this hop farm decided, you know what, skip the middleman, let's just open a brewery. Um, and so they did. And one of the cool things about it is what's, I mean, there's thousands of interesting things about it, but one of the owners is uh, Megan Quinn. Uh, who is the great-granddaughter of the founders of the, of the farm. Uh, she worked on the farm all of her life, left and thought she was never going to come back to it, you know, just wanted to get the hell out of the farm, go to the city. She moved to Seattle. Um, but then the craft brewing um, explosion happened, and she was like, okay, there's, there can be money made here. She did some home brew, and she decided that there was, there was a place for her at the farm, after all, in making the beer. Um, but what's interesting about that, it kind of rings back to a story I saw on uh, – Actually, I heard on New York Public Radio, um, and it talked about kind of the novelty, uh, unfortunately, the novelty of, of female brewers. And you just don't see them very often. I mean, the the image you get when you think of the man of the person who brews your beer is, a, you know, a, a big bearded dude. I mean, you right. see all the Sam Adams commercials. Right. One of the cool things about the craft beers things, and this is kind of what I mean, this is what this podcast is all about. Is we get to, you know you get to go out and visit and learn the stories behind all these little breweries and that opens up so much more room for diversity, but unfortunately, like according to a Stanford study, only two percent of breweries have women as their sole owners or head brewers, um, and that's something I mean that's two percent. I mean with all the breweries that have opened up, you would think it would, might be more than that. Well, yeah, you would. I mean, uh, uh, diversity-wise, you would think that the numbers would just come out, but I don't know. Maybe it's well, yeah. It's, maybe it's know, coming around. Well, and it's interesting because I mean, while beer has kind of maintained its position as the most popular alcoholic beverage among among men, like you know, especially in the twenty one to thirty four age group, we talked a little bit about uh, how wine and weed is kind of coming up. But uh, a, Gall- a recent Gallup poll indicated that craft beer has, has surpassed wine as the most popular beverage for women of that same age group, which I thought was really is that right? Yeah, yeah, which is really interesting, but. And what's other interesting, and this kind of draws back to, to your expertise, and I know you've touched on it uh, in your history uh, podcast, is that brewing has always been a woman's purview. I mean, historically, that's, oh, I mean, exactly. 7,000 years ago in Mesopotamia and Samaria, that was the, that, you know, it, it was, they were bakers and brewers. That's what they did. Their skills were, they were the only ones allowed to brew the drink. It wasn't just that they were the most, prol- you know, prolific and proficient at it. They were the only ones allowed to. Um, all of the ancient societies, beer was considered a gift from a goddess, not a right. god. Right. From, uh, from, from a god. Kinas, or, um, uh, the, uh, the Babylonian goddess's name now, uh, Shinkasi or something like that. I'd have to read about. Yeah, they wrote songs and poems to her. And, uh, you know, even during the Middle Ages, it was alewives. These were, you right. know, they were the ones who produced the ale for the the taverns and the inns and whatnot. So, um, and even where you were uh, up there, the, the Vikings, when they, they, their women made the ale, uh, women were the exclusive brewers in Norse, in Norse society. Um, all equipment was their property, uh, which, was, which was kind of fascinating. And even the traditional Germanic societies, until the monasteries took over the, the and took over the brewing duties, uh, making it you know the profession of monks and nuns. Brewing was it was all about it was the tribal Germanic women who did all the brewing. Right. Um, but but it was the industrialization that kind of started thinning those ranks because as brewing kind of came out of the home and went into the factories, the men were manning the factories. And then in the U.S., Prohibition kind of drove out all the small, you know, all the small brewers, and it was just left with the big corporate brewers who were controlled mostly by men. And it became industrial, and it was taken out of the home and out of the local community, and it became a, uh, like you said, big industry, big business. Yep. 
You know, we have okay. a couple. We have a couple of female brewers that are not far from here. There's uh, Earthbound Brewing in St. Louis. They're, the right. owner there is uh, uh, a young lady, and uh, I've been told that they make some phenomenal beers. And need to go over there and see them. And then up in Hannibal at Mark Twain Brewing Company, Cat. Uh, I forget her last name, but she's their uh, she's their brewer, brewer up there. And so, I mean, they're they're around, but uh, you know, you would think in the travels that I've done here since April, I might have ran into. Uh, a, a brewer that was a woman. I I granted some brewers assistants that were young ladies, and uh, then uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, pops into my head right away with the Dark mm-hmm. Sky Brewing. And I know there was a young lady working for our friends Forehands. I believe. That's right. Yeah, yeah. When we yeah. when we toured them, you were with me on that one. So, yeah, right. I, I I I'm sure this is going to continue to to be a trend going that way. Um, well, and there are there are organizations too. Like there's the Pink Boots Society, which is a nonprofit organization, and it, it aims to help women uh, gain experience. Because that, that's the key is getting your foot in the door. Right. Once once they get the experience, it kind of and these networking opportunities. That's what this society is all about. Is you know kind of offering each other helping hand. We talked about it before. That's kind of what's crucial in the craft brewing industry. And what's amazing about it is that even though there's tons of competition. They all are willing to help each other out, and in, in, at the end, it's you know it's about what the cool thing about craft brewing is is the the choices and and the the selection that's out there, and part of that is a diversity in voices of people making it from different places, but also different backgrounds, um, and you know. I, for one, would love to hear more from the women who like to make beer. I mean, I, I think that can do nothing but, but good. Yeah, I'd like to know more about that. Maybe we can talk about that later on the road. But we're going to be talking about, uh, for next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about Ireland a little bit. Oh, yeah. And we're Tony and I are off to Dublin uh, the first week in October along with uh, 13 of our best friends. <laughs> and oh, that's going to be awesome. Uh, yeah, it's gonna, we're going to have a great time. I've already got a couple of appointments set up to uh, meet some folks over there uh, that deal with the craft brew side of things. And so, anyway, Tony Rehagen, freelance journalist, thank you, my friend. Thank you, Alan. Welcome back. Oh, good to be home, and I'll talk to you next time. Sounds good. All right, see you. Bye-bye. Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers! And that's it, guys. Thanks again to Sweetwater Brewing Company for making us feel so at home when we visited them, and thank you for listening. We're back on our regular schedule now. I'll have an episode out every Monday for the next few weeks, even while I am off to Ireland. Be sure to subscribe, and like, and share the show whenever possible. It is greatly appreciated. For the latest news of what's going on in the world of The Bruise Traveler, follow us on Facebook at The Bruise Traveler Podcast and on Twitter at The Bruise LR. I have been woefully remiss on keeping the website caught up. I've just got to find the time to just sit down and do it. And one of these days, I will stop procrastinating or I'll hire somebody to help us out. If you'd like to help us out, well, over at the website, click on the Support the Podcast button and find out how you can be a Patreon patron of the show. That's at 
www.thebruisetraveler.com. Thank you in advance for your consideration. The musical soundtrack of The Bruise Traveler is provided by our friends Gaelic Storm. They've still got some show dates left for 2018 uh, before they take a much-needed hiatus for the holidays. So if you're anywhere near Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and or New York, check out their show dates and locations for the month of October at GaelicStorm.com. Marketing consultation is provided by Mission Digital Marketing. On a personal note, I want to give a shout out to my old friends from way back in my college days, BJ and his lovely wife, Sue Stivix over in Nebraska. BJ is dealing with a cancer diagnosis, and if I know anything about that tough little guy, cancer's got a fight coming. We're all sending you good thoughts, BJ, and love from across the plains to you, buddy. I'll come to see you soon. So I'm in Jefferson City for the next couple of weeks, and if I don't see you at the pub, I'll see you right here on the podcast. Remember, take care of each other and the earth. It's everything we've got. And Merrily, as always... You are the measure of my dreams. I do love you. Thanks again, folks, and so long for just a while. Faith is what someone knows to be true, whether they believe it or not. Flannery O'Connor, author of Wise Blood, The Violent Bear It Away, and A Good Man is Hard to Find. Born March 25, 1925, Savannah, Georgia. Died August 3, 1964, age of 39, in Milledgeville. Georgia.